Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Bojana Payunk is the Vice President of Learning and Curriculum at Duolingo, where she works at the intersection of learning science and product development. She got her PhD at UC San Diego, training in linguistics and cognitive psychology. She now focuses on developing digital educational products that are both effective and motivating for learners. Topics covered include language learning, multilingualism, second language acquisition, cognitive science, the two-body problem, language learning courses, Duolingo, metrics, management, data analysis, and language typology. Links to her LinkedIn profile and other resources can be found in the show notes. Welcome, Bojana. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I am super excited to hear about your journey from academia to your current job, which is in a place that I think employs quite a few linguists, right, at Duolingo. It seems like um, more than a lot of places, they're really actually looking for linguists to do the work. That's right. We do have a lot of linguists. Oh, it's amazing. Um, so before we get to where you are now, why don't you tell us about your journey, where you started? And really, I always like to know from people, how did you get interested in linguistics and how did you find out it was like a thing that you could get a major in? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I feel like I did not find out about linguistics uh, until fairly late. Um, so um, I'm, uh, I'm originally from Poland. So I grew up there. And in Poland, I guess the linguistics field is a little bit different. Um, it, there's no uh, major in linguistics, exactly. So you can only study linguistics um, as part of um, like a degree in a language, mm-hmm. so philology, or in computer science as mm, uh, studying computational okay. linguistics. Yeah. And so I have always been interested in languages since I, I, I can remember, really. Um, and I feel like partly it's because in Poland, that's something that, you know, everyone says, oh, you need to study languages mm-hmm. to, to get a good job. Mm-hmm. And it's true. If you only speak Polish, uh, then, then maybe your job opportunities are limited. And so in Poland, there is a big focus on studying languages. And I had this dream of just studying a lot of languages. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start learning a new language every year. Wow. And and I actually did start, I did start learning a lot of languages. Yes, Uh, I have have to ask you now, how many languages (laughs) do you speak? The the stereotypical question for linguists, right? Like, oh, how many languages? So it's it's actually really hard to answer, honestly. I don't even remember. I mean, really the ones I speak... Uh, like I would, I would actually say that I speak, or that's probably four. So Polish is my native language, mm-hmm. English, Spanish, and French. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then I studied a lot of others. I just never got um, highly proficient in them. Um, like uh, let's see, uh, German, Arabic, um, Italian, Portuguese, um, Turkish, wow, uh, Japanese, probably a few others that I'm forgetting. Um, but that was more kind of dabbling in in those uh-huh. languages, um, but yes, I was I was very interested in in languages. I just loved it, and uh, but then for um, for college, I like I said, I kind of didn't know that that was a thing you could study. So I went to do other things. Um, I studied sociology and international relations, mm-hmm. um, and 
I really wanted to be a journalist. So I actually, um, uh, so yeah, that, that was kind of my path back when I was in Poland. Uh, but I, I did a study abroad in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, uh, when I actually kind of randomly <laughs> took a linguistics class. Uh, it looked interesting from a description because, of course, I was interested in languages. And that's when I discovered linguistics uh, as, a, as a field. And that was, I did a study abroad in, uh, in a small liberal, liberal arts college in Ohio mm-hmm. um, called Antioch College. Uh, it was a really wonderful experience. And that intro to linguistics class really, um, really changed my life mm-hmm. uh, because I realized, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. That's mm-hmm. really what, I, um, what I'm passionate about. Yeah. Um, and that class, it was also really focused on um, on second language acquisition, which then really became uh, a very important part of my own research. Um, and basically what happened is that the professor who taught that class encouraged me to apply to, to PhD programs in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and he really helped me even figure out how to do it. I mean, I, I had no idea you even could do it, yeah. uh, apply from a different country <laughs> and, um, and, not, and that you would get funding uh, so you wouldn't necessarily have to pay for your studies. So that was all news to me. Um, I tried it. I got into a, to a great linguistics program at UC San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's where my career in linguistics really started. Yeah. Um, I, uh, but it was difficult because I didn't really have any, any background in linguistics other than mm-hmm. that one intro to linguistics class and that just me trying to read some textbooks before I started my PhD. Uh, so I, I felt like I really had to do a lot of catching up um, in addition to, of course, um, then having to move to another country and right. adjust. You know, your experience about taking that linguistics class and having your eyes opened, I've heard that from so many people. And it was the same for me, too. When I was in school, I didn't know that linguistics was a thing. And uh, I was an English major. And then I had to take a few linguistics classes as part of the English major. And I immediately knew that that was what I wanted to do. Like, studying English literature was so boring compared to doing linguistics and looking at the way language was structured and then all the other things that went to it. It was just the most amazing thing. I know. Yes, exactly the same experience. And I feel like when I was younger and I was studying all those different languages, those are the kinds of things I was fascinated by Mm -hmm. knowing, Oh, seeing how languages differ, how those different structures and sometimes they're related and understanding how, how the different words get borrowed from one language to another. And so initially I saw that through learning languages and then discovering that, oh, you can really study this systematically and there is this whole field uh, that does it. That was, that was amazing. Well, you had a great training. I mean, that w- what you did before you started studying linguistics is what a lot of linguists do as they're getting their degrees, right? Like a lot of programs actually have requirements that you take a little bit of a lot of languages just so you get that breadth of experience. You know, so you're looking at um, Indo-European languages, but non-Indo-European languages, different writing systems, different structures, just so you have this 
um, survey of languages, which really helps you in understanding basic linguistic concepts. So you, you prepared yourself without knowing that you were preparing yourself. I guess so. I guess so. Um, yes. And then, uh, so I loved my, my PhD program and just, you know, doing the linguistics classes. I mean, that was, that was just a dream. I loved just learning all about it. Um, and, and then I really, in my research, eventually uh, for my PhD, for my dissertation, I ended up focusing on um, on language learning, mm-hmm. how, which really also combined <laughs> this um, my passion for just understanding how people learn languages. You know, I did a lot of that myself. So from my personal experience, it was interesting to understand, okay, how do we, how do we learn languages? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also taught uh, languages mm-hmm. uh, myself I tutored and during my PhD uh, it, it was um, <laughs> it was actually part of my uh, funding uh, I was teaching in in the language program I taught Spanish uh, for two years and then actually I became um, what we call the head teaching assistant I was working directly with um, with the director of the, the Spanish program mm-hmm. um, helping train other language instructors and helping design, um, improve our course curricula. Um, and, and that was, that was also kind of an amazing experience to have around mm-hmm. understanding language learning, language teaching. Um, and, and so, so for my dissertation, I really ended up thinking much more about this problem of how people learn languages, how, um, how we can be teaching people better um and uh at uc san diego what what was also really nice is that there was a huge community of researchers uh in language not just in linguistics but also in cognitive science and psychology um and all those people formed this amazing community uh and, and there were a lot of interactions um, between those different researchers. So I feel like I, I was able to immerse myself mm-hmm. in this, uh, in, in language research from many different angles, including, um, including a lot of cognitive science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of that really <laughs> shaped my thinking and then my research. Um, so my dissertation was... Um, on how how people learn phonetic categories, mm. um, and then you know I'm I expanded later on to, to learning other other language properties, but really uh, phonetic categories. Kind of that was uh, that was a lot of what I thought about, and um, but then as I was thinking about the problem of learning phonetic categories, I really read a lot of literature also on how people learn just any categories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I found it very insightful to, to see how, how this works when we learn visual categories, let's say. And so that's where I feel like all those connections with uh, cognitive science researchers were very helpful to really uh, start connecting all those, those other types of literature with what I knew from, from linguistics. Um, and, and so I, I, that's what I found really fascinating. Wow. Uh, so at this point, as you're working towards the end of your PhD, did you have any idea about what you wanted to do after you finished? Like, did it did it seem like you would just be going straight into academia? Or were there any thoughts that you might get a job not in academia? 
I was really set on an academic job. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seemed like a dream. And I mean, partly because I think that was the main expectation. Of that, course, hey, yeah. Well, what do you do? Well, uh, what would the success look like? Well, you're successful if you get a tenure track job. Right, right. Um, and, and so that's definitely what my goal was. I was hoping I would get a, get a professor job. Um, doing research, and I love doing research, uh, but I do have to say that I I did have some doubts <laughs> throughout uh, throughout my PhD. So even early on in in grad school, I you know I felt like oh I really love this type of work, this research. It's so fascinating, but it just the pace of it. Is so slow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I already felt at the time that oh, it's it might be kind of hard to stay motivated to keep doing it mm-hmm. because it's so it feels like it's so difficult to actually have impact because you might be working on some super interesting problems and actually maybe uh, adding knowledge to the field, but to publish a paper on on a study that you did, it just can take years. Right. Right. And then it's just one paper. And so how much impact is that? Right, exactly. It's it's so funny. Um, it's great that you mentioned this. I We had a live podcast recently in talking to some folks who also had a cognitive science background. And they were saying one of the most rewarding things about being in industry is you get to see the impact that your research actually has, right? Like, as you say, you're not just writing a paper and publishing it. When you're in industry, you're doing the work and then you see what happens and how it affects people. And it's actually out there in the real world and not just in a paper that's published somewhere and no one reads it. That's right. That's right. So yes, that is definitely a big difference. Uh, from academia, you see the the impact of your work immediately. Mm-hmm. And you know, at a, at a place like Duolingo, it's, um, well, you, you work on something and then millions and millions of people benefit from it mm-hmm. um, and so even improving some small thing in one course on Duolingo I know this has such huge impact on a lot of people um, so it's it's really very motivating very satisfying oh that's great um, so uh, looking at your LinkedIn profile it looks like as you were trying to do the academic thing um, you had a postdoc and then you had an academic job after that for a little while, right? Yes, yes. So, so yes, I, I managed to stay in, in the academic world for a little bit. I was lucky enough to to get a fantastic postdoc at University of Rochester at Brain and Cognitive Sciences. It was a it was a really great department, and it really strengthened my my knowledge uh, of of learning from the cognitive science perspective, because that was a big focus of that department. Um, and uh, so I, I had a postdoc for two years, and then uh, I was a lecturer and a researcher at Northwestern University, um, which, uh, which actually, um, well, <laughs> the way that happened is that um, um, my husband actually got a tenure track job there. Oh, so, um, mm-hmm. so my husband and I, we met in grad school in San Diego, we were both in the same program, uh, and and so he he got a he got a job at Northwestern uh, as a as a professor, and then you know I joined him. They offered me this this type of position. So 
Um, so that was that was nice. That was you know one way for us to solve the two body problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a it's also it was also a great department. So it, it was really fantastic to collaborate with people there. Yeah. So during this time, um, you know, you you have a postdoc and you have a job as a lecturer. You know, you're trying to do the thing that a lot of people do, which is you're trying as hard as you can to take a train to get a tenure track job, right? And there are no jobs, so you're just doing all this stuff to kind of fill in. Was there a point at which it just became really obvious to you that this wasn't going to work, or or was it just a, a lot of small things that added up over time? I think at the time I still felt like it was, um, you know, I had a good shot at a job mm-hmm. and maybe more of a problem for me was, was a two body problem mm-hmm. that, okay, my husband got a tenure track job. So, okay. He already, uh, <laughs> he already got, got lucky with that. Um, should I just stay and, you know, pursue maybe a non tenure track job that I had at Northwestern, um, or, you know, should I try to apply somewhere else? Um, I mean, we were considering different things. Um, and, you know, I was I was applying for, for academic jobs course, yeah. as well and interviewing for them. But, uh, and, and, but yes, I was still having those, those lingering doubts. Like, okay, um, is academia really for me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, um, because of those reasons of, of kind of the, the impact I feel, I felt like it uh, it was just so so slow to do research. Again, I, I love doing research and solving those those problems that that you could solve in academia. You know, really try to think about uh, some uh, some question and and try to answer it. Uh, I, I still feel like it's a it's just a fascinating job mm-hmm. in many ways. But then I, I felt like, okay, maybe maybe if I did research that's a little bit more applied, maybe that that would help me feel a little bit more connected to the to the real world and feel more of an impact. That so that's one direction I considered. And then I was thinking, okay, well maybe maybe industry. But I actually didn't even have a chance to think too deeply about it. Uh, I feel like um, well, this kind of happened uh, a little uh, by chance how I got the Duolingo job. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I had, you know, I had one of those conversations with my husband, like I did many times before, like, oh, well, yeah, I don't know. Uh, should I stay in academia? Is this for me? Um, and he asked me this question. Well, if you, if you were an industry what, what company would you want mm. to work at? <laughs> Is there a company that mm-hmm. you would that you would like? And Duolingo came to my mind immediately um, because I was already using it. I I loved the pro- the product. I loved learning more languages on Duolingo, or just practicing the ones I uh, I already knew. So I knew the product, and then I immediately thought, oh yeah, that seems like a company that's relevant for uh, what I know about. Maybe I would be useful there. Uh, and in that conversation, we just decided to check Duolingo's website um, and see what kinds of positions they hire for. And, you know, there was this position there written basically like for me. Uh, it, it, it was all about trying to hire um, 
someone with a PhD in linguistics or a related field with experience teaching languages, someone who can be a, this thought leader uh, for the company to, to help improve uh, how, how they teach. And, and so that was, uh, <laughs> that was just this moment when I realized, okay, this is an opportunity I just have to take. I have to apply for this job. Uh, and, and I did. I, I applied just the same day. Um, and the next day I got an email from them inviting me to an interview. Wow. And, um, and I went there, I interviewed, and at the end of the day, they told me, hey, we like you. Uh, and, and so I got the job. And, um, and, and so it, it just really, I know this is not usually how you, how you get an industry job, but that's, that's how it happened for me. And I didn't even have time to, to think too much about it. Yeah. Uh, I just knew, okay, I just have to do it. It wasn't an easy decision in a way because um, Duolingo headquarters is in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And well, my husband had a tenure track job in Chicago, and so this meant that well, I I moved to Pittsburgh, and he stayed in Chicago, and yeah. we did not have a plan for how we were going to solve this. Yeah, but at the time, we both felt like yeah, I I just have to do it, and we'll figure it out later. Wow, that's amazing. I'm just processing all that that you just told me. I I think you're right. For one thing, this is not how it is for most people. But it shows that you had the, um, the drive to act on an idea, right? Like you, you maybe had been thinking about it, your husband made this suggestion to you, which was, in a way, almost like giving you permission to take it really seriously. You know, whereas it might have been floating around in your head before now, he's saying it and you're saying it and going, hey, I could actually do this. And then you took the initiative, not just to think about it some more, but to go to the website and see if they had a job. And then they did have a job and then you were able to apply for it. So it was action on your part that, you know, started the wheels turning for this to happen once you felt like it was something that you actually could do. And I think that is common for everybody who's looking for jobs. Like you have to do it to make it happen. People aren't going to come up to you and offer you a job, right? You have to be out there looking and finding stuff that looks like it matches up with your skill set. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. I think it's so important to just be proactive and, and just take the opportunities that come up. And sometimes it just means taking some risks Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but those risks, well, they can really be worth it. Um, but yes, it's, and sometimes you also have to make those decisions pretty quickly. I feel mm-hmm. like, especially mm-hmm. with industry, things happen fast. Yeah. Everything happens fast, including hiring. And you can't just be waiting because, well, that job will be offered to someone else. Right. So different from academia, right? Where, where you know, the path, the on, on-ramp to a, like a tenure track job is, is like six months or a year or something like that while they're interviewing people. And yeah, in industry, nobody has that kind of time, um, which just brings to mind something else that I've heard people say. And I, I, I assume that you would agree, but disagree if you want to, that you have opportunities and you take them and sometimes they might not be right for you, but it's better to take the opportunity and find out than to just pass on it and never know. 
yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I think you have to try things and see, and things might really not be the way you expected them to be, um, especially when you when you're just moving to a to a different world, different jobs. You know, people have a lot of maybe ideas of what let's say an industry job looks mm-hmm, like, but mm-hmm. until you try it, it's really it's actually really hard to know. Um, it, you know what aspects of it you might like what you might not like or you know how your career can can then progress from that job Um, because academia is also very uh, kind of static in a way in that you Mm. you really have the same role I mean it changes over the years but in industry you can change much more even if you're within the, in the same company, even having the same exact title, you can really shape your role. If you're proactive, you can try to change projects, follow your interests. Uh, and that's what really we expect people to do, mm-hmm. to tell us, like, okay, this is what they're interested in. This is what they're passionate about. And that's the direction they want to take. And and you can really do very different things over the years. Yeah. Uh, so how was it for you? I mean, here you were coming out of this academic background, and now you've got this industry job, and you're kind of on your own, right? What, what Was it culture shock for you? It was. It definitely was. Um, I kind of loved it and hated it from the beginning, in a way. <laughs> it was um, mostly I loved it. I immediately knew that this was this was the right decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it it I got what I really wanted. I wanted to feel like I have a lot of impact, and I wanted this faster pace of mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And that was exactly <laughs> the way it worked. Everything moved so fast, and we just wanted to deliver to just do things. Um, just give them give all the new new things to our users um and uh and so yes it was it was fantastic uh, but it was also difficult mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. i i was the first person that duolingo hired in this type of role at the time duolingo was just a small startup um there were only about 45 people when i joined and 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 in a way you know, it, it wasn't clear what my job was supposed to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, they hired me because they um, they realized it would be useful to have some expert in, you know, in, in how, how people learn, how we should be teaching. Um, but then it was not obvious how, how I should really integrate with all the, all the other work that was already happening, with how I should work with other people. And, and it took me a while to to really build trust, and it, it took me time to figure out how to communicate effectively mm-hmm. with everyone else in the company. You know, what's very different immediately is that you're now working uh, with people who have really very different backgrounds. There are software engineers, there are mm-hmm. product designers. And it's it's. They have very different experiences. They have a very different, uh, very different knowledge and uh, expertise, and I had to find effective ways of convincing them of of my ideas for what mm-hmm. I thought we should be doing, and and it just wasn't easy at first because mm-hmm. well, at first they didn't trust me. At first they 
well, they had their own way of doing things and they, their own ideas. Um, and so I think it actually took me about two years to really um, feel like, okay, now I can actually, I feel confident in, <laughs> in being able to, to do a good job. I know how to collaborate with others. I know how to, um, how to effectively present my ideas. Yeah. So it, it was a while. When you started there, were you the only linguist? Yes. Oh, okay. So they really didn't know what you did. They even know about linguistics. I mean, you said that the the um, job <laughs> listing actually wanted somebody with a PhD in linguistics. Yes. But did, when you got there, were they like, we have no idea what a PhD in linguistics is? <laughs> no, actually, they um, they did have some people who who had some background, not a degree in linguistics, but. Um, like a degree in machine learning, computer science, where they maybe studied some linguistics. Mm-hmm. So they, they had some idea that of, of what it is, and, and even even having done some work in computational linguistics, uh, but not n- none of them really had background in language learning, which is really what mm-hmm. kind of like the the expertise that I brought. Um, and yes, I, I was I was the first, definitely the first actual linguist. Yeah. And uh, so you got hired for this position and you're the only linguist there. What kind of work were you doing to start and how has, you were talking about change before. So how has that changed over the years that you've been there? Yes, it has changed. It has changed a lot. So initially, yes, I was just this first person in, in this role. I was hired as a learning scientist and, um, and at first, well, it was just a lot of, talking to people and trying to figure out what I can actually help with. Um, and partly I was, um, I was, I was helping um, with, uh, with some research studies that we were trying to run to really understand how well the Duolingo was teaching at the time. Partly I was doing analyses of existing courses, um, trying to uh, identify the main gaps in the curriculum uh, and making proposals for how to, how to just redo uh, mm-hmm. some of our content and, and curriculum. Um, partly it was even just working myself on, on some of the courses. Like, you know, I had a lot of experience teaching Spanish. And mm-hmm. so that's a course I was, I was just directly helping yeah. <laughs> um, recreate. Uh, at the time, uh, Duolingo, the way we built courses, um, it was through um, volunteers. Mm-hmm. So Duolingo had this program uh, where course creation was uh, basically outsourced, uh, and and we um, we accepted volunteers. It was actually uh, competitive to become a Duolingo volunteer. So people applied, and we selected uh, them to um, to to build our courses. And that's how Duolingo really mm-hmm. scaled very quickly, uh, being able to to offer a lot of courses without having you know people in the company actually having to to have expertise in that um it was just people who were passionate enough that they were they were willing to build those courses so how did you have quality control when it was volunteers who were building the courses right so that was that was one of the problems (laughs) is that your job (laughs) (laughs) and that was partly what uh definitely i uncovered um that it was it was difficult i mean it, it just the quality um i mean really really varied uh i mean just dependent on on the team a lot of the teams you know, we're really building high quality courses, but others maybe less so. Uh, I mean, these were volunteers, so not all of them were even experts in 
in you know language teaching uh, actually not not that many of them had that experience mm-hmm. but they were all they were all really passionate about sure, uh, creating yeah. those courses but yes there, there was no um there was no systematic way of of creating Duolingo courses it was uh those first courses were just kind of created a little bit uh, the, the curriculum was a little bit um random i would say um it was just kind of whoever created the first course they decided to you know teach these particular words in 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 this order and that's kind of what it was and then maybe what we uh what happened is that uh well we would copy that structure and then um other people would would just create a new course with exactly teaching exactly the same words just in another language so that's that's kind of how it how it happened which again was great it was i mean it worked surprisingly well um Duolingo really became popular uh, with with these types of courses, uh, but yeah, they were not they were not teaching very systematically, and they were not covering um, kind of everything you might want to know. There, there were gaps. I remember that in some courses we would realize that oh well, we teach um, you know spring, summer, fall, but we never taught winter, <laughs> or we taught one, two, three. Uh, four, but we didn't teach five, and you know, then six, seven, eight. So, so there were just some kind of uh, random gaps in the in in the material. Uh, so, yes, one of my uh, my initiatives was really to 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 figure out how we can do it better in a more systematic way, uh, and and that's that's kind of what I initially really advocated for. Can we just um, go back and recreate our courses from mm-hmm. scratch, actually do it in a way that's much more systematic, that actually uh, also implements all kinds of best pedagogical practices that I knew about, or mm-hmm. you know, all those things I knew about how, how people learn and making sure that, okay, how can we distribute the material so that it's not overwhelming, so that we uh, keep it manageable, it's, so that it's well scaffolded. So that the cognitive load is not so high, like with many of those initial Duolingo lessons right. where so much material was just packed into them. Wow, uh, that's amazing. And what a perfect position for someone with your background, right? Like you would be the person to offer research-based advice to say, this is how we should be restructuring things. Um, how was that all received within the company? Um, I, I want to think that because you have a PhD, they would actually listen to you about stuff like that. <laughs> actually, a lot of people had PhDs. This was pretty funny because, uh, yeah, it felt like almost everyone at the time had a PhD, uh, mostly in computer science. Um, right, um, right. <laughs> but um, but no, it was it was difficult. Um, so, like I said, I think it took me it took me about two years to actually convince people to to trust me, and that was actually the main project. It took me two years to convince them that you know, re- redoing our courses, recreating them, actually building better content would would really help, would really help us uh, bring in more people to want to learn on Duolingo, to keep uh, the learners that we have for longer. You know, at Duolingo, we just uh, have all those metrics. We look at, you know, how many people use Duolingo every day, how many come back the next day, 
uh, a week later, two weeks later, uh, mm-hmm. how much time they are spending in the app. And so those are the metrics that we we track. And, and I had to somehow prove that, well, if we did all this work, that this would help us improve those metrics. Mm-hmm. And really the way to convince people, you know, they didn't just trust me because I had a PhD or I had this expertise. Unfortunately, that's not how it worked. Um, so I had to prove it to them with data right. that, okay, like if we do this, this, those metrics go up. And so that's what I had to do. And that's why it took so long. Um, but basically I had to set up this whole, um, well, one thing I had to do was create part of the content in this different way that I thought was better um, as like a proof of concept. And so that's, that's, um, that's something uh, that I did. And that was actually initially in our, uh, one of our English courses. Um, English is such a, such an important language uh, to, to teach. So, uh, so I created some um, like a chunk of, uh, of a course uh, together with uh, with a freelancer who was an expert in, in teaching English, and um, and then I had to set up a system to help me, well, get some data about about it about okay, are are people learning more through this new content that I built, and so I I had to develop just a little a mini assessment, different um, test items. Uh, it was also good that I had experience with this through my time teaching languages during grad school. Uh, that's that's something that I also did develop uh, test items, and so um, so I did that. I developed um, this whole um, metric to help us measure learning outcomes, and and we put it in the app, and we we then collected data and we saw how much people learned uh, in in the original course. And in that part of the course that I created, um, and 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 I managed to prove that oh, people are learning much better. People are actually sticking around for longer. They they enjoy this content, and so that was a big turning point. Yeah. Because when people saw the data, that's when they realized, oh yes, this is actually <laughs> this is actually worth all the effort. Yeah. And so that's when I I feel like I gained people's trust and then everything became much easier and we started pouring more resources into these kinds of initiatives that I was championing. Yeah, that's great. I just want to step back for a moment and talk about something that I, I hear it in what you're saying and I've heard it from so many other people too. Like when you are looking for jobs, your skill set, your resume is not going to say, I conducted research to figure out how to make language learning software better for people, right? Because that's not a thing that you would have done. But in the course of your PhD research, you've conducted lots of research that's very similar to that. So you know the basic skills. You know how to set up a research project. You know the kinds of questions to ask. You know how to analyze the data once you get it. And all of that stuff is a transferable skill that you can use when you're looking for a job. Um, you know, you have the background, you have the experience, you've never done that particular study before, but you've done lots of studies that are very similar to it. And that's where your training as a linguist is really important, that you you understand how to get the results, even if you've never gotten those particular results before. Yes, that's right. And I felt that really everything I learned in grad school um, and beyond really helped me 
in this job. Um, definitely being able to run these kinds of studies, understanding how to set up experiments, how to analyze data. I did all of that. But then also all those other skills around communication. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I I had to learn a little bit more how to communicate with this particular audience that has very different background. But just having that training from grad school already helped me in, you know, how I how I just presented ideas, how I talked about Mm -hmm. research. Um, So so that that was also very useful. And then also just this training that I feel like in linguistics in particular, uh, we get we get we get a really solid training in um, kind of logical thinking, mm-hmm, analytical mm-hmm. thinking. We do a lot of these uh, this language analysis, and I feel like that's that's another skill that's so helpful. Being mm-hmm. able to think through some arguments, some things that you can then you can then poke holes in things. Mm-hmm. You you can you can really reason about things. Um, and, and that just you can apply it to, to basically any problem, and it's a it's a very useful skill to have. Yeah. So all of that I, f- I felt like came in very useful. Right. And the thing that you need to do as as a job seeker is just figure out how to say that on your resume and then explain it to your potential employers in a way that they can understand. And that that is as you say a skill that you need to learn. But it's not that hard. It's not that different. You got to just remind yourself, you're not talking to other linguists, right? You're talking to, uh, quote unquote, normal people who don't know a lot about linguistics. So you got to figure out how to say it in a way that they'll understand. Exactly. Exactly. It's just about stepping back a little bit and figuring out how to how to talk Mm -hmm. about your own expertise, about, um, you know, your ideas in a way that that's that's really accessible yeah Um, that's great Uh, so so just jumping ahead a little bit um you you were doing this work you made this great sea change at duolingo um how what are you doing now like how did you get to where you are now so then things progressed gradually once um once I, (laughs) i feel like i proved my value then um we actually um started hiring more people in this role so I, I then first got to hire hire my my first intern uh, we had a summer intern and then we immediately hired her um, full-time she um, she had a degree in applied linguistics um, and, and then we hired <laughs> more and more people some of them were linguists some of them more um, uh, people with degrees in um in other languages, like and teaching English as a second language, mm-hmm. or in Spanish linguistics, uh, French linguistics, things like that. Um, and so, essentially, I got to start uh, growing this team, team of experts in in languages and language teaching, in learning science, um, and and so I, uh, you know, as we were hiring more people, my role started changing as well because then I became a, a manager. Uh, of all of, of those people mm-hmm. I started growing this this whole um, what we call a function so it's like a role of, of learning experts you know similar to like engin- software engineering is a is a function or um, marketing is a function or mm-hmm. design is a function so so I, I got to create really from scratch this new new function at Duolingo uh, eventually we 
came up with a name for, for our group uh, and it's learning and curriculum. So that's uh, it's kind of like the name of the, the, the whole this whole department that we mm-hmm. have. Uh, right now uh, we have um, about 40 people in on this team and, and all of those people are, like I said, kind of experts in in learning, teaching at, at this point, uh, it's also actually beyond languages because Duolingo started venturing into math and also music. And so we've hired experts for those subjects as well. Uh, and, and so my role, again, started kind of changing as I became a manager I and then manager of managers. And now uh, I'm, a, I'm a vice president. Mm-hmm. And so that, <laughs> that actually, um, uh, that was a big change because yeah. uh, that, I'm, I'm part of the, what we call this, the senior leadership at yeah. Duolingo, which means I'm really part of the more strategic thinking about the company, about what we're doing, where we're going. Um, and I get to essentially advise on this. Um, well, of course, always bringing in my perspective on uh, that, that others don't have in that group around, well, how, how should we be teaching? And of course, the language is, is still the primary thing that we focus on. So how should we be teaching better and better? How can we make sure that our courses keep getting better and better? Um, and so that's, that's really mostly what I do right now is leading this function of learning and curriculum um, and, and then being um, kind of part of this more strategic high level um, advising, kind of strategizing on, on kind of the, the, the company. Yeah. So uh, was it a, like a hard emotional journey to move into management? Because um, managing people is a skill, right? It's very different from doing uh, like data analysis and stuff. It's a, a whole other level of organization and being able to communicate with your team. So how did that feel? Yeah, definitely felt like, um, you know, something new to learn. Although even that, I have to say, I felt like I I had some experiences in grad school that really mm-hmm. helped me um, because having research assistants or teaching assistants, you know, all of that is people management as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's of course, much smaller scope and um, you know, it's, it's not exactly the same, but it definitely, um, having that experience helped me a lot because I felt like I already knew how to supervise other people and how to help them develop certain skills. And so becoming a manager just meant, well, developing more of those skills, getting more, more experience, um, learning more things that are more specific to industry, um, so yes, it was it was difficult. I feel like I'm still learning how mm-hmm. to be a manager. Uh, it's not it's not easy, and I guess you know most people can can pretty much choose if they want to become a manager or not. I feel like for me it was just well, I just have to do it. I was I was that first person uh, who was hired. I was the one building this whole group of people, um, and so it's just kind of like nobody ever asked me if I wanted to be a manager or not. It just kind of happened. I mean, I was, I was happy to do it. Uh, this felt like a nice new challenge. Um, I like that you said that, that, you know, it's a thing you can do. Usually you get a choice as to whether you should do it. And 
I, I think it's um, another one of those things where you may not know if you like it or you're good at it or not, and maybe you just need to try it. And if you try it and you find out that you hate it or you don't like it or you're just you're not good at it, you don't have to keep doing that, right? Like you yeah, can, that's right. You can always move laterally and do something else and just accept the fact that you're not a good manager. And that doesn't mean you're not a good employee or that you're not smart. It's just a skill set that you just you know, you don't like, or you just don't happen to be good at, or you don't enjoy it. I mean, in, in my position, because I worked at a very small company, I had to do some management and I didn't really like it very much. It was sort of thrust upon me. I would much, much rather have a job where I don't have to manage people because it's like too much emotional energy for me to do that. Uh, but yes, that's right. You can, you can try things and you can figure out if you like it or not. Uh, that's, and that's definitely what happens a lot. People try different types of roles um, and we even try to do it intentionally for people if someone is thinking about going in a certain direction um, like maybe they want to become a, a, man, a manager a manager of people maybe they want to be a leading a team which actually Duolingo is, is kind of like a different role um, we try to give them certain projects or opportunities that are in some ways similar mm -hmm. to that or they, they can get a feel for what this kind of job would look like and they have a chance also to demonstrate um, that they would be good at it successful at it um, and then if that goes well then you know maybe we move them more in that direction and then again see we see how it goes but yes nothing is kind of definitive mm -hmm. um, People can definitely switch uh, directions at any point. Yeah, I, I, and I think most companies too are invested in seeing their employees grow and learn and take on um, different jobs or different skill sets. And as we always like to say to people, sometimes you'll get a job at a place at a company that's not interested in that. But you know what? You don't have to keep working there. You can go somewhere else. Um, it's very different from the academic model where you tend to just go for the tenure track thing and that's your job for the rest of your life. And in industry, just the opposite is true. Most people move from job to job and it's not because you failed at one job. It just means that you're growing and learning and you want new challenges. That's right. And I, I really love it about industry that you can really do so many different things. You can try things um, and, and just everything changes so quickly as well. Mm -hmm. um, at Duolingo, we just keep um, changing teams. There's, there's a new team. <laughs> Every year we create multiple new teams to focus on new problems. Um, and then we, you know, we wrap up some other projects. We just really keep thinking carefully about what we want to prioritize at any mm -hmm. given moment. And that's where we put our resources. Yeah. Um, and, and so that also creates all kinds of new opportunities for people to, to work on certain projects, to move in, into certain roles. So it seems like from what you're saying, things that do in Lingo are pretty good. Do you feel like the opportunities for linguists at language learning companies in general are pretty good? Cause obviously there's lots besides Duolingo. Um, that are popular. So would you, would you say that it's a, a good industry to be interested in if you're graduating with a degree in linguistics? I think so. Um, I don't have too much visibility into how this works at other companies. Um, I'm not really sure how many people get hired mm -hmm. uh, in this type of role in other companies. Duolingo, Duolingo feels special in that we actually do 
have this this fairly big group of people with this kind of background with a lot of linguists mm-hmm. um although um, and so i i know that that's also done in other companies uh but i don't i don't actually know how big uh, those those teams are um but yes i think it's a you know it's a linguistics is a is a good degree for i think for many different jobs mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. it's <laughs> language learning companies are just one option especially if you well if you also specialize in um in something like applied linguistics more mm-hmm. on the teaching side or understanding the kind of cognitive uh science of learning uh kind of like the like my background um because that's that's really what's most useful um but um but linguistics is also you know very helpful uh, for for other types of job jobs like UX research mm-hmm. or if you've done experimental research or data science if you're if you if you're strong in data analysis um, or other types of research scientist type job, type jobs that different companies have so depending on kind of what your exact expertise is you can go in many different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, Yep, we've heard that from a lot of people and that for these types of jobs that are, you know, data driven to a large extent, you don't have to know lots of programming languages, you don't have to be super technically skilled, although it can help. What they're not, they're not looking for that from you, what they're looking for is your expertise in language. Yes, yes, definitely. And at Duolingo, I mean, when I hire people, I I definitely look, depending on the position, we either look at expertise and you know, in a specific language or, um, I mean, teaching that language and does, um, or, um, you know, understanding kind of how, how learning works. So if you've done kind of experiments on artificial language learning, you know, that's actually very helpful. I mean, that's kind of what I did in my research. Um, and a lot of linguists um, go in, in that kind of direction. Another thing that uh, has been actually very useful is also look for people who really have good grounding in language typology mm-hmm. uh, because we don't, you know, we're not able to hire experts uh, in every single language that we teach. We've hired people, you know, for the main languages, English, French, Spanish. Actually, we hired also someone for Japanese because that's an important and kind of tricky language for us. But otherwise, well, we we kind of have to figure out how to improve other courses mm-hmm. without having those in-house experts and we rely a lot on uh on just freelance um uh workers who 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 help us but then we need people at duolingo who who can work with freelancer teams uh and understand <laughs> the needs of a of a certain language mm-hmm. i don't know for example uh Korean like okay we might have for a certain period of time um, we hire some freelancers who are experts in in teaching Korean but then someone at Duolingo has to talk with them and guide them on how to then build improvements to to our Korean course given all the constraints Mm -hmm. uh, that we have given on you know how how we build courses um, how you know the specific methodology that we do want, we want to apply 
And for that, it's so helpful if that someone really understands kind of at a high level, like what kinds of linguistic properties mm-hmm. Korean has. And even if they don't know about Korean in particular, well, they know enough about typology, generally about languages that they can really catch up on um, on that particular language. So that has been also very helpful. Yeah, that's great. I, I'm thank you so much for going into such depth about all these different roles and skills and the kind of work that they do at Duolingo. I, I think most people don't get to see that kind of deep dive into a specific company unless they're interviewing there or doing an informational <laughs> interview. So I really appreciate you being able to share all these details. It will be so helpful to people. As we're kind of wrapping this up, I. Is it okay if we put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes in case people want to contact you with questions? Yes, yes, of course. Oh, that sounds great. Um, so this has been fantastic. As I said, thank you so much for sharing all this incredibly detailed information. It's super, super helpful. Um, and I just want to, to thank you for representing linguists, like being the first at Duolingo <laughs> to kind of, you know, stand up for linguists and show them how valuable it is. I think you are very much a, a trailblazer in that way. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Again, thank you so much for your time. And I'm sure you will be hearing from people who listen to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, it's it's been really great to, uh, to be able to talk about this. I'm always happy to share my experience because I know that being on the other side, mm-hmm. it's really hard to even imagine what those jobs look like. Um, so yes, happy to, to always share uh, some of my experience. Great. Awesome. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.